You are listening to the Grace Covenant Cornelius Podcast. Amen. Well, this morning it's my privilege to welcome our guest, Dr. Glenn Burst Jr. He's going to be bringing the message as well. It's great to have our other campuses. We are one church that meets three in three locations. So we have our Statesville campus. We have our East Lincoln campus who are joining us live in worship this morning for the message. So we, would you join me in welcoming our church family from the other campuses as they're connecting in live with us this morning? But today we have uh, my friend, my pastor, mentor, and the leader of our church family, the Foursquare Church, uh, Dr. Glenn Burris, Jr., here to bring the message. You know, interesting that in 1980, uh, Pastor Glenn, his wife Debbie, and their two young children, Josh and Heidi, showed up in Cornelius, North Carolina, um, before we had exit... 25 before we had this location, and they served faithfully here for 12 years as the pastor of Grace Covenant. Actually, when I came out of Bible college, it was Glenn that was willing to take the risk on me and brought me on staff for my first opportunity to serve. And through the years, Glenn has been just a huge blessing and a guide in my life, certainly not only a blessing for our Foursquare family, but for me and my life and leadership. I've Blessed in my life to have a godly earthly father, and beyond a godly earthly father, God's blessed me with a spiritual father, being Glenn Burris, uh, and he has so shaped my life as we think about ministry and what that looks like. He is the model that I followed my life after, so I've been blessed by his mentorship in my life. And in this service, we have uh, his wife, Debbie, who's uh, here with us. Debbie, would you stand? Would you give his wife, Debbie Burris, a warm welcome as she's coming home? For the past 10 years, Glenn has served in this office of president, president of our church family, and he's in the last quarter. He's almost up to his retirement, um, but he has served us in a phenomenal way with integrity and passion and great vision, and he's positioned our Foursquare Church forward for the great mission that God has for the great harvest that's ahead. So it is an honor for us to have Dr. Glenn Burris Jr. here this morning to bring the message. Would you give him a warm Grace Covenant welcome as he comes? Thank you, Farrell. Love you. Good morning. Boy, it's so good to be back here. We spent about 26 years of our life here. And uh, we lived on Main Street in Cornelius where everybody knew your business. Um, in a parsonage for about nine years, so it was a little difficult to have any secrets. And uh, my lovely wife uh, came with me. We were we only pastored two churches. We pastored in Macon, Georgia. Uh, in fact, we sang the song "Raise a Hallelujah," which was written by someone from Bethel Church in a miraculous intervention uh, of a child's life. And of course, you know the ministry of Bethel and. Uh, it's world-renowned. So Debbie and I, when we pastored in Macon, Georgia, were not allowed to join the Ministers Association because it was run by the Baptist. And the Baptists at that time thought that all the Pentecostals were going to hell, and the Pentecostals thought all the Baptists were going to hell. So we couldn't meet. Well, I, it was so funny because I was in Woodstock Baptist Church recently, Pastor Johnny Hunt, who's now becoming the vice president of evangelism of the whole Southern Baptist movement, 40,000 churches in the U.S. Uh, he has a $100 million sanctuary there, the First Baptist Church in Woodstock. It's a 
incredible church. I met Johnny, and he said, I want you and your wife to come and be our guests one Sunday. So we came, we sat on the front row. Johnny introduced me. Now, remember my history of being in the Baptist church uh, 35 years ago. And so Johnny said, Glenn is the president of the Foursquare Church of Pentecostal Denomination. And he said, most of you don't know this, but I'm a Baptocostal. So if during our service, Glenn gets up and starts running, I might join him. Now, I never told Johnny, I've never run in a Pentecostal service in my life. I've run from a few things, but I've actually never run in a Pentecostal service. But I thought it was funny. Of all the years that theology has often separated us, that worship brought us together. That God said, I've got a strategy that's going to exceed yours. I'm going to bring you together to worship the one King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so today when I hear us do these songs, and we're going to talk about the greatest worship songwriter ever, the greatest king, the greatest warrior, um, David, um, it's just, it's amazing how worship has become the thing that's united many different sectors of the Christian faith. Um, and I think... If we can unite around worship, I think there's one other thing we can unite around, which is our mission to reach the lost. Everybody needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And I'm fortunate to be able to be involved in lots of interdenominational things. Well, Farrell, Debbie and I are really proud of you and Charlotte. What God's done in this church is just phenomenal. We love all the reports. I'm connected on Facebook with many of you, and uh, it's just fun to see that. Now, when we moved here, I was 25 years old, and Debbie was 26. She robbed the cradle and uh, <laughs> married a younger guy. Um, but I want to show you a couple pictures of us. So this is our family when we just moved to Cornelius. Uh, that was in Hendersonville. So Heidi was four, Joshua was two, and then the next picture shows uh, Debbie with Joshua at our parents' house. When I see this picture, I, I almost think that that's Debbie's younger sister, but it's, it's actually Debbie at 25. And then the next picture I want you to see, because these are our four grandkids. Our, our oldest grandson, Hunter, has got the, the swimsuit on, and he's uh, just to the left of Avery, our oldest grandchild. We live a mile from Hunter, and he loves uh, his Gigi. She goes and picks him up every day at school, and he spends the afternoons with us. And it's one of the reasons we moved from California five years ago to Canton, Georgia. And so I commute to L.A. for work. That's, that's how much I love my grandson. Um, and uh, it's just been fun to have him. Our other three ones, Avery, uh, Taylor, and Luke, are all Von Burruses. So they're my son and his wife's children, but her name was Von Wold, so they, they all took the middle name Von Burris. I think that would get you upgrades at certain hotels. So I'm changing my name to Glenn Von Burris, because I just think that sounds cool, and I'll be connected with my grandkids. They just moved from Minneapolis to Pittsburgh, so they're a lot closer, and uh, we noticed it was 40 degrees difference between Minneapolis and Pittsburgh yesterday. So this is our family. I retire in uh, seven months, and this is what my retirement looks like. This is going to be fun time for us. Um, now I'll show you the next picture. This was two years before I became your pastor, okay? 
The reason I wanted to show you this picture is I was 25. Now I'm 65, 40 years later. Last night I was at 131 Main Street with my wife, my middle brother, and my younger brother. We finished dinner. Jeff and I started out the door. We were standing there waiting on my younger brother and the three wives to come out of the restroom. And a young lady, I would assume in her mid-40s, walked up to us and looked at us and said, Would you like to go to the bar with me and get a drink? My brother looked at me, I looked at him, and I said, uh, excuse us, but we're waiting for our wives. They're on their way out. She smiled and said, okay. She turned around and walked into the bar. My brother looked at me and he said, there must be slim pickings in the bar tonight. (laughs) It was funny. Now, I can say this because my wife is now officially uh, on Social Security. I get on Social Security in uh, August, so we're officially old people, so I can make old people jokes. So my wife sent me this picture. I just want you to see this. Corn maze for old people. (laughs) We should be able to find our way around this corn maze. Now, if you don't think I'm not getting older, let me show you one more picture that I forgot to show the, the first two services, so I'm showing you this one. You can't really see this, but I like this pair of shoes so much I bought two pairs. The problem is I brought both right shoes with me. So last night about 9.30, I was pulling out my stuff so I wouldn't wake my wife up when I got ready for early service. And my wife said, I don't think anybody would notice. And so she modeled them for me. I put them on but kept walking in the same circle. So... I decided to wear some other shoes that I brought, but I I miss my good shoes. But that might have something to do with us getting a little bit older. We started with a um, slide today that said, Build My Life, with the backdrop of the Roman Colosseum. It was built for around 60 to 80,000 people. For 400 years, Christians were martyred here. In fact, for about... Ten centuries, Rome was the center of the world. Remember the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Um, Much of the early scriptures were translated into Latin. In fact, for a long time, uh, only church leadership knew what the scriptures said because they were only translated into Latin. That's one of the one of the deals when Martin Luther nailed 95 arguments on the door of the Wittenberg Church and, excuse me, the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, when he simply said this, I thought, wow, this, this should, well, we should all assume this, but he said, everybody should be able to read the Scriptures, not just a few educators and experts. So he was frustrated. It's interesting. He wasn't frustrated with the devil, wasn't frustrated with the world. He was frustrated with the church. You have gotten in your own way. God has called you to give the gospel and the good news to everybody. In fact, when Jesus gave the commandment to the disciples to go to Jerusalem, be filled with the Holy Spirit, it was so that everybody would become witnesses, not just a few. The Holy Spirit would empower you and you would all become my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and around the world. So that assumed the church would include everyone. And we complicated it and we even got to the point where we martyred in the early days. The church martyred its own 
because we wanted to protect the right of a few. Rome um, really shows us that no matter how competent, no matter how strong, no matter how educated, no matter how uh, big you become, that change is inevitable. And those of us who think that life will always be the same, given generations, uh, don't know history very well. Life changes. If there's anything about life that's constant is that it changes. And one of the things we understand that is through the stressors in our life. And I I talked earlier today about aging. Um, Ponce de Leon spent his whole lifetime looking for the fountain of youth. We spend $100 billion plus in the United States on anti-aging products. Um, And it only slows things down. It doesn't reverse them. It's established because of the fall of man that given enough time, we all have an appointment with death. And um, hopefully we have committed ourselves that we have an appointment with life. I was encouraged, though, to read of a lady named Lois Paulson, who's 105 years old in Illinois, and she just got her driver's license. Um, Now, I was a little uh, concerned about being in Illinois because they said she was the fourth oldest driver in Illinois, so there are some older than her, um, but she had to pass a driver's test and an eye test, so uh, kudos to her. Your health, your body's not going to last forever. Uh, I've been at death's door twice uh, in international situations, had to be air vac from Cambodia to uh, Thailand. Um, when I was your pastor at age 36, um, I had a ruptured uh, ulcer and quit breathing for five minutes on a table at Carolina Medical Center. And uh, when I came to and could figure out what was going on, the Lord said to me that those days, uh, you're not leaving early. I have an appointed time uh, for you to meet me, and it's not now. And so God has spared my life. It's been since that day, by the way, that was in 1991, I believe, that I've never feared death because I've lived off of a conviction of a word of God that he knows when my last day is, and I don't have to worry about that. So I don't know when that is, but when it is, I will meet him. Relationships. You know, you think about marriage, you think about divorce, you think about widowhood. I've met several people that Debbie and I knew for a long time here at the services over the period of time today and discovered that spouses have passed away or even kids have passed away or parents have passed away. Finances are up and down. My son uh, was, um, in a sense, let go of his job last fall because he wouldn't move to New York City. He had a very good job, great money. I said, I would have moved. He said, I'm not going to drive an hour and a half um, on a train from Connecticut to New York City. And they gave him five months. He took that time to, to apply for jobs. He's got 13 job offers and is now making two and a half times more than he made when he left. You never know, but there are seasons where you engage in those moments where they test everything about what you know. They test your convictions, they test your values, they test your principles, they test your faith. And what often happens is our emotions get very involved and get raw and sometimes end up with anxiety or, I mean, we are the most, we're the most prosperous nation in the world, but is it interest to you that we're the most anxiety-riddled nation in the world. We're the most medicated nation in the world. Because somehow in the middle of all of that pursuit 
of leading the world, we forgot about oftentimes what really, really matters. And so life then hits us from so many different, uh, and, and sometimes they're real. It's not imaginary stuff. I, I can't imagine the people in Puerto Rico, how much more that some of them can manage from living through the most devastating hurricane ever to now dozens of earthquakes every day shaking that nation. I never thought to myself, I mean, I lived in California with the threat of earthquakes all the time. I never thought about Puerto Rico being, and yet people are having to live in the middle of all of that. We think of people's failure and their success. We think of success. If I could just do that, do you know that 70% of all lottery winners are bankrupt within 10 years of winning the lottery? See, we, we have a concept of what happiness is, but the Bible defines for us what joy and happiness and what peace is. That is a peace that passes human understanding. I've discovered this in 44 years of ministry. Please hear this. No human strategy can dismantle spiritual strongholds. Only spiritual strategies can dismantle spiritual strongholds. I've, I've, um, I've felt opposition in my life. I've had people who didn't like me. I'm sure you have too. Um, I've got some letters that I keep that remind me of how unpopular I am with some people. But... That's of little concern to me as much as the oppression at times I've experienced when all of hell came against me. And if you know what I mean, you know when those times are, when there's an all-out assault of hell. Um, We saw that in the life of Christ. We saw that in the life of Paul. And so these are just things that we navigate through life. and, And yet some of us see people in certain phases of life, and we go, if I could just be like that. Pat Boone, um, I, I'm a lot younger than Pat, but i I known Pat because he was a part of a four-square church, and in the 60s, Pat sold more records than anybody but Elvis Presley. Sold 60 million albums. And I've known Pat for a couple of years, and so he, he came on a plane that I was flying back into L.A. with, and I saw him come in. I had gotten bumped up to first class, and, and I saw him, and I just, our eyes met, and I said, Hi, Pat. I had no idea that he would even know. I thought he might just be, at least be nice and say hi. And he said, Hi, Glenn, and it shocked me that he knew my name. So he sat down beside me, and I decided I'm not going to bother him. I'm not going to talk to him because lots of people want pictures and autographs. But when we got ready to leave, he tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, Glenn. I said, yes, Pat. He said, I called Shirley before we took off. That's his wife. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I told her, Shirley, don't worry about me. I'm on the plane with Glenn Burris. (laughs) I thought, that's pretty cool. Maybe you heard about the young student at Florida Elementary School that was told to wear his favorite school um, color, and I think he wanted to, to actually bring your favorite school's T-shirt. He loved Tennessee, but he didn't have enough money to afford a Tennessee shirt, so he brought a T-shirt and had put a paper on the front of it and pinned a white piece of paper on the front of an orange T-shirt That was the Tennessee logo. And the teacher noticed during the middle of the day he was crying, so she asked him, this elementary school kid, and he said, well, all the kids are making fun of me because I didn't have enough money to buy a T-shirt. And so she decided to write the University of Tennessee. They sent every one of the students in his classroom Tennessee memorabilia. 
He went from being the joke of the class to the hero of the class. They actually made a t-shirt after his design. And they can't keep it in stock. They just recently offered him a four-year scholarship to Tennessee. Don't you just love a God who just flips the script? You see, we tend to live life in a bubble of what life is like right in front of us. We don't oftentimes trust a God who sees from yesterday till tomorrow. And oftentimes we have to be reminded of that, and the Word is what is often the solid part of our life. My story for a few minutes today is about the life of King David, because he is undoubtedly, other than Jesus, the greatest hero in my life, because he's real, he makes mistakes, he fails, but his heart is one I want to capture. We, we get introduced. I'm going to focus on 1 Samuel 25 today, but it's a story of an encounter with David and Abigail and Nabal. But, but I want to start by when we first read about David in 1 Samuel 16. He's out tending sheep on his father's farm, and Samuel, who's the prophet, um, has been called by God to go and anoint a new king, which Samuel says to the Lord, that's pretty dangerous because we have a living king. He said, I still want you to go and anoint the next king of Israel because I removed my anointing from Saul. So Samuel finds his way to Bethlehem under God's direction, and he finds his way to the house of Jesse, and he says, where are your sons? And so he parades seven sons in front of him, and Samuel thinks it's that one. No, God says it's not that one. That one. No, it's not that one. Do you have any other sons? Yeah, I got uh, our youngest son is out tending sheep. Well, bring him to me. When he came in the room, God said, that's him. Now, 1 Samuel 16 said that Samuel had consecrated all of Saul's son, sons, but he only anointed one. He brought a horn of anointing. In fact, the elders of the city of Bethlehem said, have you come with bad news? And Samuel said, no, I'm actually bringing good news. And in front of everybody, including uh, Jesse's other sons, he anoints David. We don't know that he told Jesse or David or his sons or anybody else that he was anointing him to be king. But we do know this. The Bible says when he anointed him with oil, the spirit of the Lord filled David with power. Then Samuel left. That isn't the finish of David's journey because He goes back to the field and his father sends for him and says, hey, I want you to go to the front lines of war and bring back news from our sons. And so three of David's brothers are in battle and David is sent with some supplies. And when he gets there, he hears this giant of a a warrior calling down Israel. And I love what, what Samuel records. It says, everybody ran from the voice, but David ran to it. And David said, who is this guy that's defying the armies of Israel? Now, what we know if we read chapter 16 and 17 is that David actually already knew Saul. Saul had been tormented by evil spirits. And someone said, hey, I know of a young kid who's a harpist. And if he comes, it'll soothe your spirit. And God will actually uh, cause the evil spirits to flee. And that's exactly what happened. So David and Saul knew each other. David is brought into Saul's presence, and David says, if you'll let me have a crack at Goliath, I'll take him out. Now, David already knew that the person who defeated Goliath would get Saul's daughter's hand in marriage, would become very wealthy, and wouldn't have to pay tax on the money. Now, I love this story, so women forgive me a little bit, but I think this is funny because I've heard all my life that 
women speak twice as many words as men. But I think we have a reason because when David's told that the killer of Goliath got the king's daughter in marriage, he said, tell me that again. So I think that the reason women have to say twice as much is men don't listen the first time that we're told stuff. So that's why you have to tell us twice stuff. So David finds this battle. He beats Goliath. He um, comes into Saul's household. Now, I love this because this has to be on Dr. Phil's dysfunctional family show. Saul, who wants David to marry his daughter, grabs a spear and throws it at David. And then says, would you like to marry my daughter? Sure I would. And I'd like to join your family and become your favorite son-in-law. And the Bible says David rejects his first daughter. He marries his second daughter. But then Saul pursues him. And so David ends up running into the wilderness and ends up with 600 men that are disenchanted, discouraged, in debt. And so that's his first congregation. David has this group of people. Now we come to the time where Saul is pursuing him. Just before the chapter we're going to read this morning for a few verses, David is hiding in a cave. Saul comes into the cave. He doesn't know David's there. David could kill him. He chooses not to. Saul leaves the cave. David comes out of the cave and says, Oh, Saul, I could have killed you. God gave you into my hands. And Saul turns to him and says these words before we read 1 Samuel 25. You're a better man than me. I know now why God has put you in charge. I know now why God's hand is upon you to be the king. Now read with me in 1 Samuel 25, a few verses, and then we're going to finish up. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at the home at his home in Ramah, and David moved from the desert of, of um, Paran. So what you find out is, look at all of these changes and transition and stressors in the life of David. His spiritual mentor has died. He's now on the run from Saul. He's moved again in the wilderness. Now it says in verse 2, A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was sharing in Carmel. His name was Nabal. His wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. When David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel, greet him in my name, say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we have come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Now, you would assume, I mean, at least in my opinion, David is asking about as nice as he can to Nabal, would you share some of your resources to you? We've been really good to your men. We've kept people from uh, hurting your shepherds. We've guarded your flock. But in verse 9, it says, when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. And in verse 10, Nabal answers David and says this, who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Let me, let me translate that for you. Who does David think he is? I didn't ask him to guard my flock. I didn't ask him to protect my men. Who does he think he is? There's already some resentment in Nabal's um, 
inner feelings toward David. In fact, he says he's not even submitted to his master. Why would I help him when he's on the run from King Saul? Verse 12, David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. I want you to picture this. David, who is a man's man and a warrior who has never lost one battle, says to his men, strap on your sword. We're going to war. And his goal would have been to wipe out this man who was disrespectful to him and who dishonored him. That was the way of life back then. Remember in the Old Testament, it was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, render evil against what? Evil. But let me paint a different picture for you because this is a picture of Christ. And this is what I want you to hear. Nabal was a picture of evil because the Bible says Nabal was rendering evil for good. David had been good to him, but he said, I'm going to be evil to you. But David was really taking after the current times because he said, you disrespected me, I'm going to take care of you. Which I would say to you today, David was rendering evil for evil. But Abigail, she said, what would happen if you render good for evil? See, that's a picture of Christ. That's a picture of the future. That is what Jesus would say. Turn the other cheek. Walk the other mile. Do good to them that use you. Pray for them that curse you. That's the way of the church. It's not the way of the old covenant. It's not the way of the old way. So Abigail hears that David is on his way to kill her husband. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking there's a description of Abigail. She's beautiful and intelligent, and her husband's mean and surly. You might want to think that Abigail would say, this has been my answer to prayer. (laughs) I mean, you're sending me David. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to wait and cash in on the life insurance. Instead, the Bible says she gathered some things, went to David at the risk of her own life, knelt down before him and said these words. This is not your destiny. Everybody knows God has anointed you as king. You don't want this in your story. Aren't you the one that taught us the battle belongs to the Lord, but that's not the way you're acting You said the battle belongs to the Lord, but you've taken this battle. So, David, which is it? Does the battle, I'm not asking you this morning, does the battle belong to the Lord or are you taking the battle into your own hands? See, I think that's a word for us today. When we're faced with things we can't control or or faced with things that kind of trip our emotions to a point that we're not responsive, we're now reactive. Whatever they are, but what we know is they've been out of our control, and we're going to bring them back in our control. One of the most tender passages of Scripture is when Paul is headed to Rome. I've been there. I've been to the prison where he was taken and arrested and executed, where Nero finished his life. A couple miles from there is the Sistine Chapel. If you want to go there, the the crowds wrap around the block because they want to see the paintings. But if you go to the Mamertine prison, it's a dungeon and no one's there. But it's where Paul went. 
He's at a Bible study on his way to Rome, and they say to him, don't go to Rome, because if you go to Rome, they're going to arrest you, and if they arrest you, they're going to beat you, and then Nero's going to execute you. And this is what Paul said. I love this. Paul said, I'm going to Rome to make God known. Now, if you're part of that Bible study, or you're even part of the early church, the truth is, Paul goes to Rome, gets arrested, gets beaten, gets executed, and his earthly life is finished. So you would probably think, thanks, Paul. If you'd have stayed with us, we could have... So I read this all the time about Christians that are persecuted around the world, and, I'm, and I want to pray for them, but I also realize that God's up to something, even in the midst of persecution. Thanks, Paul. You could have stayed and taught us. You could have started a few more churches. You could have discipled a few more people. What was this about going to Rome and making God known? What nobody would have realized at that time is that Paul went to Rome, chained between a couple prisoners, and he wrote some letters. And today, 60 million times a year, those letters are reproduced. 2,000 years after they arrested him, beat him, and executed, he's still making God known. Why is that important? It's important because when we see life in our finite understanding with the lens that only see today, it's why Abigail said to David, is your life, is this the firm foundation you're going to write about? David would write Psalm 62.6 when he says, You can abandon everything else, but don't abandon your trust for the Lord because he is your only firm foundation. You can't count on your finances. You can't count on your health. You can't count on your friends. You can't count on those that are closest to you. But you can always count on God. Everybody may forsake you, but not him. When Jesus was in the garden, here's one question. Because... God was getting ready to die. God the Father, will you be there for me? Is this your will? Did I miss something or is this the way? I think it's kind of fun. I told the first service this morning, maybe it was the second service. Debbie and I came to this church as 20-somethings, and the Clantons were in their early 70s, and they had pioneered this church and been here 45 years. And they looked at us, and I think they thought, we're turning the church over to them? (laughs) We've put our life into this place, and he's 25. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. In fact, there were a couple of times that I'd look down in the middle of my sermon and looked at Dr. Clanton, and I'm sure he was going like this. That's not right. That's... (laughs) And then Mrs. Clanton told me one day, she said, I'm taking my organ home. I said, the organ belongs to you? She said, yeah, we're not happy with how you're leading the church, and I'm taking it. It was a Hammond organ. And and I found out that somebody had donated the organ to her honor. And so I went to their house, and um, about six months later, she threatened to take it again. So I finally went to the church council, and I said, do we have enough money to buy an organ? They said, why is that? I'd be like, because the Clantons are threatening to take it, and I don't know if I can stop them from doing it, but if they want to have it, we'll take it to their home. They may want it on the front porch. They may want it in the living room. I don't know where they want it, but we're going to take it, and we'll buy a new organ, and we'll get a new organ player. So they said, yeah, we got enough money. So I went to the Clantons, and I said, listen, if you'll trust me, I'm going to honor you. And for the next 10 years, we honored that couple. 
We blessed them financially. We took care of them. This was their family. They didn't have any family other than a church. Pharaoh followed that same thing and honored them even more than we did. In fact, when I left, ten years later, she was still playing the organ. It wasn't plugged in, but she was still playing it. (laughs) But they finished with honor. And I believe today... Just like David honored Saul. That if God has honored my life in any way, it's because I chose to honor his servants. Because I'm more interested in building his foundation than I am in maintaining my own. You try to lean on your own stuff and it will crumble under your weight. You try to put the pressure on people to fulfill your needs, and they can't do it. Only Jesus can. So as we sing this song, Build My Life, you're going to finish with some words taken right out of Psalm 62, because David heard Abigail, and this is what he said. He humbled himself in front of this woman and said, God sent you to me. You saved me from myself. And because of that, we honor David today. And because of that, we have a model of what our firm foundation should be. Let's stand and sing this song, shall we? For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.